Awesome. Guys, I got some crazy news for you all tonight. Do you know we only have two more wells after this for the year? Ah! Oh my goodness, but we're, we're going to go after it tonight. Let me tell you, um, we are moving quickly through the book of Acts at this point. Stacy last week did an awesome job, brought us on tour with Paul and Barnabas in their first mission trip. And when they came back at the end of that mission trip in chapter 14, they did what all of us do when we go on a mission trip. It says they reported all the things that they had seen God do in the time that they had spent on mission. Some of you guys know what that's been like this year, right? You've come back and you've reported all the amazing things that God did on your trips, right? Yeah. yeah. And some of you are going away this summer. There's all these cool things that I keep hearing bubbling up away. God is sending you guys out from this place in all kinds of amazing ways this summer. And we are excited about that. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of those things tonight. But we're going to uh, do our best to stay in the field of the, the section of Acts that we're going to look at tonight. There's a three- or four-year gap in between when Paul and Barnabas returned from their first journey and when they set out for their next journey. And, dude, there's so many amazing things that happen in Acts 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I'm like a kid in a candy store whose mom said, you only get one. I mean, this, is, this has been a real struggle to discern what's that one thing that we're and that one story that we're going to look at tonight. But I think... I think we've got it. Um, but before I even uh, jump into that, because what we're going to look at is Acts chapter uh, 17. So if you, wanna, if you have a Bible and you want to open up to that section, we're going to look at a part of Acts chapter 17. Uh, but before I even go into that, let me just mention something about Paul's life and his work on the front end of it. Because I think it's really pertinent to all of us who are starting to size up graduation. Some of you guys are going to be graduating soon? Like one. Okay. Sweet. Everybody's coming back. No, no, some of you guys are going to be graduating, right? Yeah, you are. All of you guys are going to graduate at some point, hopefully. But some of you are graduating soon, and that angst starts to kick up. What am I going to do now? What am I supposed to do with my life? And some of you, you're a freshman, and you're already thinking about this. Oh, my gosh, what am I supposed to do with my life? Right? i got to figure this out now. i got to know what I'm supposed to do so I can go where the Lord wants me to go and do what the Lord wants me to do if I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. And as we look at Paul's life, Here's some good news for you that's going to be an important part of our story. Do you know that Paul actually spent 10 years working? After he was converted, he saw a vision of Jesus. He spends 10 years in Tarsus and Antioch working in his trade, doing ministry on the weekends and in evenings. Like 10 years he did that before he did any of his missionary adventures that, we come to know, that we've come to know him for. And so for those of you that are really trying to figure out, man, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? How am I supposed to get there? Dude, chill. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Jesus was 30 before he started his full-time ministry. Paul was well into his 30s before he started his missionary work. Be faithful where you are. Serve Jesus where you are. And when the time comes... For the next chapter, you'll be ready. You won't miss it. Paul and Barnabas, that's what they did. They didn't miss it. They were right where they were supposed to be, right when they were supposed to be there. I think that's true 
for us. And that's where we pick up the story. Paul and Barnabas are ready to head out on their second missionary adventure, but actually they have a significant disagreement about who's supposed to be on the team. So rather than let their disagreement hinder the work of the Lord, they decide to have two separate teams and they go in two separate directions. Uh, One of them, Paul, goes on the road uh, up through the churches that they had visited. Barnabas comes by water and goes around the other direction. Uh, And so now Paul and Silas are heading back to the churches that they helped start. And then, hey, they don't have to go back to class, so they keep going on to Greece. Uh, And as usual with Paul, some really great things happen and some really bad things happen. But as we get to Berea in early chapter 17, the believers actually put Paul on a ship. And they send him 300 miles down the coast to get him out of that area because things were getting so heated for him in uh, northern Greece. And we come then to Paul's arrival in Athens, Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. And this is brand new territory for them. Has never been there before as far as we know. But Athens is a different place. Athens is a sophisticated place. Athens is an educated place. Athens is Harvard, Princeton, and Yale all wrapped up into one city. Okay? Athens, listen, if you don't know Western history, or if you have some cursory understanding, what Athens is like the granddaddy of Western civilization, right? It's the birthplace of Western philosophy. It's the birthplace of Western University of Education. You can all thank Athens for this. It's the birthplace of Western science. It's the birthplace of Western democracy. It's the birthplace of Western culture. Athens is the granddaddy of our civilization. And Paul finds himself right in the heart of Athens. And this is what happens, starting with verse 16. Paul was waiting for them, waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens. He was greatly disturbed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day after day, with those who happened to be there. Now a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him to the council of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. See, all the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent uh, their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around looking carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So you don't know the very thing you worship. That is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He isn't served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. And God did this 
so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now then, if we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human hand and skill. Now in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now... Now he commands all people everywhere, repent, for he has sent a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he's giving proof of this by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. (laughs) Some, though, said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, uh, and also a number of others. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Paul was greatly disturbed to find the city was full of idols. Literally. We had a a picture of uh, uh, a, a setup of ancient Athens in uh, the first century, or going into the second century. Can you throw up the black and white? There you go. So, and Chris, if you could give a little shot right down the main roadway there. You see, the, oh, oh, that's even better. Thanks. We, we, this thing was lost and it is now found. Rejoice with me, my friends. We have found the lost clicker. I think this is the one. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. So, this is the main roadway of Athens, Right? And it goes, you can see all of these buildings around it. Even the little things right here. Temples. Shrines. All kinds of altars to all kinds of gods. And the pinnacle of which is up on the Acropolis, this beauty right here, the Parthenon. Temple to the goddess Athena, patron goddess of the city of Athens. In the ancient world, if you wanted things to go well with your city, the way that you deal with that was to dedicate a major temple to a powerful patron god. Athens, Athena, right? Get it? So you dedicate that to her or to to him, and that's one way to secure your protection. But you can see this, how crazy that is, right? I mean, everywhere you go, there's pagan temples in downtown Athens. So if you were thinking about, like, say, downtown Grand Rapids, so we're walking down Monroe Center, and instead of really cool hipster coffee shops and eateries, just on every side, pagan shrines, right? Hey, you need your leg to be healed. Come on in. Make an offering to the God. Hey, you want your business to go well? Come on in, make an offering to the God. Hey, you want to defeat your enemy? Come on in, make an offering to the gods. Anything you needed was available to you for a price. This is how life worked in ancient Athens. Like, nobody would question this, really. I mean, there's a few folks, the Epicureans and Stoics, we're not going to talk much about them. They might have questioned this a little bit. But your average Athenian, frankly, your average Roman, this is just how life works. This is what you do. Idolatry is inherently pragmatic. It's about security and happiness. 
If you need the gods to protect you from danger, buy a statue, get an amulet, wear it around your neck, then they'll protect you. You want the gods to make your business work, make your family prosperous, make your journey good, make an offering, and it'll secure it. It's just how life worked. And if you really, again, want things to go well for you, man, the whole city has to be in on this. Everybody has to do their part to make sure the gods don't get ticked off and also to get what you need. Paul says he examined carefully and he became deeply disturbed by it. And that makes me wonder, if Paul were walking around our city, if he were walking around our university, what would he see that might be deeply disturbing to him? Now, I want to ask that because I think for most of us, Athens just seems really far away, right? Not just geographically, but culturally, doesn't it? I mean, we don't make offerings to gods in order to get things that we need, right? I mean, silly pagans, gods are for kids, right? We don't do this stuff. We're sophisticated, modern people. This isn't how life works for us. No, we don't put someone's name on the building to offer to the gods in order that we might secure their favor? We don't offer, make offerings to the gods so that they'll grant us prosperity. Oh, no, by the way, dude, it's totally normal that the average college student graduates with $28,000 of debt so that we can be prosperous in the future. Totally normal, right? We don't give, oh, that got a little too close to home. Nobody laughed at that one. (laughs) We don't give offerings to the gods so that they'll make us happy and attractive. No, we just spend $20 billion a year on weight loss products, $40 billion a year on cosmetics, a modest $12 billion a year on non-necessary cosmetic surgery. But that's totally different, right? Totally different than what those silly little Athenians do. No, our culture is sophisticated. It's modern. We haven't been duped into thinking that we have to give an offering to the gods in order to find security and happiness. I mean, of course, the average American carries $4,000 of credit card debt, but we need that stuff to live. I mean, 36% of men and 18% of women use Internet pornography habitually, but that's not a big deal, right? Just blowing off steam. By the way, if you think that we figured out sex cells in the 20th century, just wait till Ben talks about the Temple of Artemis and, and uh, Ephesus next week. This ain't a new discovery. But hey, we're sophisticated. We're modern people. We, don't, we haven't been duped into believing we need the gods to make us happy, make us secure, right? Huh. And yet, for all our strivings, Is our culture happier, more secure than any other culture in the world? Actually, a Time magazine just put out an article a few months ago about how, yeah, with all of our prosperity, for some reason we can't figure out, Americans aren't happy. Paul sees the extent of the idolatry in Athens, and he's deeply disturbed by it. Maybe we should be too. So here's what he does. 
He doesn't run away and hide. Right? That's one response. Let's just get out of here. Let's go somewhere else. Let's be in some other place where they don't have this problem. That's not what he does. But he also doesn't go stand on the street corner and just start condemning everyone, right? He's not one of those cats uh, that show up at the transitional link every fall and just have a twinge of glee in their face when they just shout at everyone, you're going to hell! No, that's not what Paul does either. No, he, instead he engages the conversation right in the heart of Athens. He goes right to downtown, man, Main Street, Athens. And he starts talking to people there about the good news of Jesus, about the resurrection. See, because for Paul, Jesus is not a religious leader. He's not a philosopher to be put alongside all the other philosophers and the gods of Athens, Rome, or America. That's what they expected when they called him into the court of the Areopagus. They expected to hear a new philosophy. They expected to hear a proposal to build a new shrine in a city that's already full of shrines. They expected a message that would add to the plurality of offerings in their city. Instead, what they got was a message of exclusivity. God does not live in temples built by human hands. You Athenians are so spiritual. You're so sophisticated. You've surrounded yourselves with the things that you think are going to make you happy and secure, but you don't have it because you're looking in the wrong place. These temples, these idols, they look stunning, they gleam, they glisten, they shine, they make promises of security and happiness but they never deliver. Now the one who made the universe doesn't dwell in these things. He doesn't need anything from you. But he's given everything to you. And he has even more that he wants to give. There's a new kingdom. There's a new king. He's Jesus He's the son of the Almighty. He came once as the lamb for the offering, but he is coming back, the lion of justice. Stop putting your hope and your security into the gods. They won't deliver. Put your faith in Jesus because he's already delivered and he will deliver even more. This is the reason that Paul gets into so much trouble wherever he goes. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) The message of the resurrection and the reign of Christ is dangerous. It is dangerous to the gods of every age and every place because in Christ we say to the gods of Athens or American culture, we are not your slaves anymore. We are not playing by your rules anymore. We belong to a different kingdom and a different king. And that's the message Paul takes right on the main street, right into the heart of Athens. You don't have to be slaves to this anymore. Your creator has come to set you free. And the whole city repented and turned to Jesus. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. 
there were three different responses that people had in the city to Paul's message. It's the three responses that people still have. So what I wonder is, which one of these is your response? The first response is, this is just ridiculous. And let me say, that's valid. I mean, maybe your friend brought you here tonight. This is, the, this is something you're just checking out, and this seems like way over the top, right? And that is, again, that's reasonable. Look, I fully acknowledge that the idea of God sending his son into the world to die to, uh, for our sins, that he raised him in order to justify us, that he is coming again to set the world right, that is a crazy notion, outlandish claim, and awesome but maybe it feels like it's ridiculous. Another response, you know, I'm curious. I'm not sure if I'm there yet, but I want to know more. Man, if that's you, keep coming around. Hey, if you think it's ridiculous, keep coming around anyway, because it might start to stop seeming ridiculous soon. But keep coming around. Or hey, let's get coffee. I'll buy. Look, I, wasn't, I didn't grow up Christian. I, had, I have lots of questions. I still do. I've wrestled with lots of questions throughout my life in Christ man, let's talk. Let's work this out. But a third response is, I want in. Like, this makes sense to me. I want to be free from the bondage of always trying to make my own way, always trying to buy my own happiness and security. I want in. What do I need to do? And if that's you, I want you to know that there will be some of us uh, will be kind of hanging out down here afterwards if you want uh, to pray or if you want to know more. What do I do? Like, how do I do this thing? Um, and what we can, would love to talk with you uh, about that afterwards. So after the service, some of us will be here uh, to talk about that if you want. But I think there's actually a fourth option that's not in the text, uh, but it's certainly an option, I think, for many of us in this room, and that's the response to say, I'm in, all in. The response to carry this message of the kingdom and the new king into the main streets of our own culture to look carefully at the idols in our own culture that promise security and happiness and expose them for the frauds that they are and to be witnesses of true security and real joy that comes through Christ and the justice that is coming with his reign. For if we truly believe that Easter changes everything, then we have good news. So where is Main Street? Where's Main Street at the nursing college? Where's Main Street at the education college? What are the idols in the business college? What are the idols in the film college? What are they? Look carefully for them. Ask for discernment about what they are so that you can unmask them for, for the frauds that they are. Let's go to Main Street with this message of hope. Let's go to Main Street with this message of freedom. Man, let's go to Main Street with this message of real joy and this message of justice. A lot of times I think we think about this as somewhere else. And we'll go to Main Street in Brooklyn and do this. We'll go to Main Street in um, East Palo Alto and do this. 
How about Main Street, GVSU? How about Main Street, Grand Rapids? Main Street, Allendale? Remember, Paul spent 10 years working in his trade, doing his job and doing ministry on nights and weekends, 10 years before God ever called him into the missionary work that he called him into. Can we be faithful right where we are and trust that whatever main street we live on, God has a message of freedom and a message of joy for the people on that street. And he has put you there so that they can hear that message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word always brings us comfort. Thank you for calling us, bringing us into your family, that you sent someone to share with us this amazing message of grace and this message of freedom and this message of joy. Thank you for it, Lord. Thank you that you are transforming our lives. And we pray, continue to do that work in us, Lord, so that if, those, if there are some of us that uh, are needing to respond to this grace for the very first time, give us the courage to respond to you and to follow in the steps that you're going. And for others of us, God, many of us in this room who have heard this message, we have said yes to you. We are following you. God, awaken us. Disturb us with the idols of our own main streets so that we can see them and so that we can proclaim that the gospel is greater and more powerful than all these things. Awaken us, Lord, and empower us for the work of your kingdom right here, right now, right where we are. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we all say together, Amen.